0: Amen. We can say amen. It's just wonderful to uh, sing God's praises together uh, with you all, and that's what we like to hear with all of your voices. And uh, we have the best seats in the house up front here. I always say that, but it's uh, we still have some empty seats up up front here. So if you want some of the best seats to uh, sing together. These are the ones up here. Turn with me to 1 Peter this morning, chapter 2, and we're down around verses 21 through 23, and we are learning from the Master, learning from the Master, Jesus Christ. As we consider the exhortations in this chapter, it helps us to keep the larger context given in mind. You know, with preachers like me, you can lose the forest from the trees. We've been banging around between the trees for so long, you forget, the, you forget the forest. And there's pros and cons to different styles of preaching. One of the cons to my style of preaching is we can be banging around between individual trees, and, and we, we lose track of the forest. So uh, a little bit of the forest here, it, it helps to keep that larger context in in mind. And it's really back there in verse 12 where Peter urges these early Christians, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, or honorable among unbelievers, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's the context of the passage and the verses we're studying. Peter is concerned that our behavior be honorable among unbelievers, even while those same unbelievers persecute us and speak evil of us. That's the context here. Honorable behavior representing Christ as He really is, because of how you live under unjust authority or just authority. That's the context that we have. And Peter is concerned about this. He's concerned that that new religion on the block, this new strange religion in the latter part of the first century that nobody knows about, that this new religion be honorable in the sight of unbelievers. That's our context. Peter describes the honorable behavior that he has in mind beginning in verse 13. And all of our mouths kind of drop. Here's the honorable behavior. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance or authority of man for the Lord's sake. Wow, I'm an American. (laughs) Oh, no. I love our country, okay? I'm not going to slam our country on the 4th of July weekend, you know? You know, I've ratted on Valentine's Day, on Valentine's Day Sunday once. I won't ever do that again, okay? But there are great things in our culture, and then there are things that aren't necessarily that great. But honorable behavior, according to Peter, in this context has a lot to do with, how we interact to the authorities that God has placed over us. And so he begins that in verse 13 about the civil authorities. Now in verses 19 through 21, he tells us twice what God thinks highly of. You want to know the behavior? You want God to think highly of you? Well, of course I do. Well, okay. Here he tells us twice... What causes God to think highly of us? First in verse 19, For this is commendable before God. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering unjustly. That's commendable before God. Because of conscience sake toward God, because your conscience is bound to submit to the authorities that God has established and you know those who are authorities are from God your conscience is bound to submit to them but while you submit to them you suffer unjustly for good and the text says then God that's commendable in the sight of God and then he says it a second time in verse 20 But when you do good and suffer. Oh, I thought, I thought, I thought obeying God just got me all kind of good things. It makes me happy and everything goes easy and smooth. No, no, no. Oftentimes, obeying God leads you into suffering for doing what's good and doing what's right. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And if you weren't with us last Sunday, you know, it's really weird, you know, it's hard to promote your own preaching, and I very seldom do it. But if you weren't here last Sunday, you need to listen or watch that message, okay? And I would just really encourage you uh, to do that, and I'm not going to review any more. Now, in verse 21... We learn that to suffer because of doing good is our calling. That's our job. How did I ever end up in this job? You know, have you ever felt that way? Ended up in a job and you say, what have I done? How did I ever end up in this job? Well, we as Christians, we can feel that way. Look at verse 21. For to this you were called... To this suffering for righteousness sake. That's the context here. For this suffering for doing good you were called. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us. Leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. I've got that calling because Christ suffered for me and redeemed me. That's how I got that job. Verse 21 makes a lot of things clear in this context. The Christian slave who suffers unjustly while doing good is actually serving God and imaging, showing forth Jesus Christ. And the Christian slave is a model for every Christian under unjust authority. That's what Peter does in this passage. And that's probably why, in the household code, he begins with the slaves. And that becomes a model for every Christian. Whatever authority they're under, you see, that Christian slave, for conscience sake, following God and obeying, is imaging Christ in a way greater than anybody else can. And I'm not promoting slavery or saying slavery wasn't a horrible evil. I'm giving you the historical context of what's going on. And Peter sees eminent Christ-likeness in the behavior of first century Christian slaves. They are in a position to eminently reflect who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And that's what he's doing there. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? The historical context is really important. To really get the impact of what these New Testament writers are writing. So that's a calling. So verse 21 is making a lot of these things clear. It's showing forth Christ by behaving like Him. The reason for submitting even to the harsh is a transcendent reason. Through suffering unjustly we become like Jesus. We become like Christ. Through suffering unjustly. Paul desired to what? To enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Paul said, I want to do that. I want to enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Well, he did. Because he suffered so much for following Christ and doing good. And in that way, he entered into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And you know why he said he wanted to do that? That I might know him. That I might come to know Jesus. You know, we think we're going to get to know... Not slamming systematic theology, okay? I love systematic theology. (laughs) We think we're going to get to know Jesus by getting every doctrine pure, by getting everything right, by getting the definition of every word. And, And hey, I love every word. We need to contend for all of them. But that alone is not going to get us to know Jesus at a deep level. But suffering for righteousness' sake, for His name's sake, is going to lead us into knowing Jesus in a way we could probably hardly even imagine. And that's what these early Christians were experiencing. They got to know Jesus by suffering for doing good. That's right. God's the teacher. He brings the lessons when he sees fit. We haven't gotten that lesson very much in this country yet. (laughs) We might. So you see, the purposes here are transcendent. Through suffering unjustly, we become like Jesus and we come to know him according to Paul. It's one of the vehicles. It's Philippians 3 is what I'm referring to from Paul. And we image Him. We image to image Him to the world around us. The Christian's calling involves suffering for doing good and continuing in spite of suffering unjustly. This morning, we're going to focus on verses 21 through 23. And we considered last week, and I need only say this morning briefly, that we know we are called... By the Father and Son to live this way. We are called to this. And that is a very encouraging thought. Whose idea was this? Not mine. It was God's idea. He called you. Got it? You are called by God to this. That makes a whole big difference. And I won't review anymore. But the idea to understand That we are called by God to this. That makes all the difference in the world. When the injustices come as a result of doing good. You must remember you are experiencing the very thing that God has called you to do. Don't try to get out of it. That's amazing. To this you were called. The text says. Now why have we been called to unjustly suffer for doing good? For to this, verse 21, for to this you were called, what? Because, because Christ also suffered for us. There's the reason. We need to think about that. We're called to this because Christ also suffered for us. That is, He suffered what? Unjustly for us. He suffered unjustly for us. Christ suffered the greatest of injustices for us. Do you and I believe that personally? Do we believe that personally? I mean, when I got to that text as I was working on it, this week I had to stop and say, you know, Do I believe that personally? Do I believe that this man had me in mind and that he went through this horrific suffering and that he did that for me? That he did that for me? My heart was warmed. (laughs) Nathaniel and I said, well, maybe God's made us preachers because this is the only way we'd persevere, (laughs) you know, in the Word. I don't know about that, but I feel that way at times. Yeah. Because Christ also suffered for us. Brothers and sisters, that's why we have the Lord's table every month. That is, He suffered unjustly for us. He suffered in innumerable ways, didn't He? By assuming our human nature, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. I can't plumb the depth of that Christology. There's, systematic theology is great to work on this. That's a good place for systematic theology to go to work. What in the world does he mean? He obviously suffered for us, according to Romans 8, by taking on our human nature and coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became capable of suffering by doing that. The incarnation. He became capable of suffering by being incarnated in a fully human nature. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His countenance was marred more than any man. As a captain of our salvation, He was made perfect Through suffering, he was made into the perfect, capable Savior through suffering. He would not have been a perfect, capable Savior for you and me unless he had suffered. That's what that text in Hebrews means. He was made into the perfect Savior for you and me. He became fully equipped to save you and me through suffering. All of his sufferings were undeserved. They were unjust. He did not merit a single one. Not a single one. He was hated without a cause. The scripture says, "That is without a just cause." Right? He was hated without a just cause. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. When we are treated unjustly for doing good, we should immediately go to this text in our minds. We are on. The job we've been called to do. The workday has begun. When you suffer for doing good. And you suffer unjustly for doing good. It's you know you've shown up at the job site. Your work day has begun. You're in your calling. When the Lord leads us into those situations. We're in the calling with which he's called us. Next, consider the wonderful legacy Jesus left for us. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. He has left us this wonderful legacy of his example. Leaving us, see that? Leaving us is a legacy. He came into this earth. He's now exalted at the right hand of God. But as he proceeded to the right hand of God, he left us this wonderful legacy, this example. That's what I think of it as. A wonderful legacy he left for us. His example. You know, often we say, I'm confused about what to do. Or I don't know how to do this. Well, we've been left with a very precious thing, an example. We learn as much by example as we do by didactic instruction, maybe more. They work together. Okay, let's not pit them against each other. They work together. There's lecture and there's lab, right? (laughs) And in the Christian life, if you want to use a college model, some of you are laughing, if you want to use a college model, there's lecture and there's lab. And for lab, we have Jesus' example, don't we? What a legacy. See, He has shown us, the Lord has not only told us what to do, He has shown us how to do it. He has. You know, you go, well, I don't know. I go just, just think about His example. Just think about Him. Just think about what He did. And you just stay there and, and think about it. Enter into it. Watch Him respond to being reviled and misrepresented and threatened and forsaken. Just watch Him. Just watch Him. And you see if there isn't a transformative power that works in your life when you do that. That's right, there is. You are being, we're beholding His glory, and the Scripture says it, you're being transformed from glory to glory. But you have to look at Him. You have to think about Him. You are not Moralist. Do you understand me? You are not just with a set of rules. I must do this and I must not do this. I must do this and I must not do this. You're not going to make progress in real holiness. No, no, no. I must follow Jesus. I must look at him and realize. He's given me this legacy and an example. And he says, come on, come on, come now, follow me. I love you. I died for you. I redeemed you to transform you and make you like myself. Now come and follow me and look at me in the gospels that I've left you. Look at my example. I'll show you how it's done. That's what Peter is saying. He's given us this wonderful legacy, the example that we should follow in his footsteps. Having the example, what then? You follow in his footsteps. Makes perfect sense. Got to have the example, then follow the steps. A lot of confusion evaporates In a lot of situations when we do that, it really does. Not all. We need more than just the Gospels, okay? But the rest of Scripture helps us understand what really is going on in those Gospels, doesn't it? Absolutely. It absolutely does. Old and New Testament. We'll see that in a moment before we're done here this morning. This wonderful legacy... We've been given this example because we need it. We are called to submit to authority, even if it's unreasonable. We are called to patiently endure suffering unjustly. That's a high calling indeed, and we need it. One primary means to get to level three, and that was last week, so I'll bait you. I'm not going to tell you what level three is, so I'll motivate you who were not able to be here to listen to the levels of last week. One primary means to get to level three is the example we've been given. That helps us get to level three. I've already said, I think everything else is in this paragraph of my notes. You cannot be too familiar with Christ's life and example. You just cannot be. Peter continues by selecting a few examples that he witnessed. Peter witnessed Jesus living these ways time and time again. We are bound not only to admire, but to imitate our Lord. It's much easier to admire our Lord, and that's good, <laughs> and that's part of it. But we're also called to imitate. Admire and imitate. That's what we're called to do. We are to follow his steps. Jesus' own words are applicable here. Quote, If any man will be my disciple. I mean, who else's disciple would you rather be? I mean, do you realize the invitation that's in that statement? Jesus is the perfect man. He's the perfect human being. And he says, You can be his student. I don't know about you, but I really... I had a few college professors. They were great. But none of them are like, Jesus, (laughs) this is an invitation. He can be your teacher, your leader, your master. What a wonderful thing. Mary had it right, didn't she? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. I love that picture. Jesus is her master. She is his disciple. If any man, Jesus says, will be my disciple, and in that there's an invitation, come and be my disciple. If any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow, follow me, follow me. Peter selects three examples from Jesus' life. He begins using Isaiah 53 as describing Christ's life. In so doing, Peter connects Jesus to Isaiah's suffering servant. If you know the book of Isaiah, this is really biblical. This is biblical theology, by the way which we add to our systematic theology. Peter connects Jesus' suffering to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who will ultimately redeem Israel and bless the nations. It's worth noting that Peter is the only New Testament author who explicitly connects Jesus to Isaiah 53. He's the only one that does that. Now, in four cases out of five, the label God's servant or servant, referring to Jesus. Peter does that. He's the only one that does that. The fifth place is in the Jerusalem church's prayer, referring to Jesus as your holy servant, Jesus. That's Isaiah. More than Isaiah 53, that's the suffering servant in the evangelical prophet Isaiah. Peter obviously has this connected. Jesus is the suffering servant of the book of Isaiah. Peter understands that and no doubt that was reflected in that early church. And it shows up on the lips of their prayer in Acts chapter 4 as they are praying and they refer to Jesus as your holy servant, Jesus. Jesus. Peter begins by reminding us of Jesus' sinlessness, quoting Isaiah 53, 9. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Pointing out Jesus' sinlessness heightens the injustice which he received. Sure it does. There was no deceit found in his mouth and his sinlessness points out the height of the injustice that he endured. Peter says in verse 22, who committed no sin. Perhaps those who have a shrunken idea of sin may be able to read this statement without a sense of awe, who committed no sin. But at a moment's with a moment's serious reflection will lead you to stand in amazement who committed no sin. Use God's definition of sin and extend it over Jesus' entire life. And on top of that, he was constantly subjected to unjust suffering. Yet... He committed no sin. I have never known anyone like the person described in these words. There's no one like Him. Have you? Have you ever known anyone like this? Have you ever rifled through the pages of all the history of mankind? and found anyone like this, I challenge you, you won't. You won't find another historical figure like this who committed no sin. You lower the standard of what sin is and you will cheapen the wonder and amazement of this man. And his life. Wow. Committed no sin. Of course, Proverbs 29 reads, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Only one person can say that, and that's Jesus Christ. And he actually said that publicly when he looked at his enemies and said what? What? Who can convict me of sin? And he wasn't (laughs) self-righteous. In the wrong way we think of that. He was sinless. Peter saw that. Peter knew that. The Old Testament Scripture, Isaiah 53, said that. He committed no sin. Now, I think it's significant that the specific sins which Peter mentions which Jesus did not commit, all have to do with our speech. He mentions three, and they all have to do with what comes out of our mouths. There was no deceit in his mouth, no reviling in return, and no threatening. All three of those are sins that have to do with our speech. Does Peter have James's wisdom in mind? For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Amen. Jesus is that perfect man. And he never stumbled in word. He is a perfect man. Able to bridle the whole body as well. There's only been one perfect man. Beginning with, nor was deceit, he was sinless, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Compare this to Psalm 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Speaking lies. Oh, we love all the precious children In this congregation. And I gather to think that there's not a parent in this congregation that has taught your children to lie. They did that all on their own. (laughs) Just like this verse says. The seat has been found in their mouths. And boys and girls, that's why you need a Savior. That's why you need this man, Jesus Christ. And he can save you from a deceitful mouth. He can and he does. The devil has two attributes. He's a liar and a murderer. And he uses lies to murder. Contrary to this, God is a God who cannot lie. So is Jesus. And Jesus doing the good of telling the truth regarding his relationship to the Father often resulted in him suffering and being reviled. But Jesus said, And if I say, if I say I do not know him, the Father, think this one through. Jesus says, If I say I do not know the Father, I shall be a liar like you. Jesus unreservedly confessed, no matter what it brought down upon him, what his relationship was to the Father. And they tried to kill him and stone him because he made the good confession. And I think that's the good confession that he made, that I am, the Son of God. He is my Father. And He made that confession. And it cost Him His life for making that confession. That's right. He was truth-telling. He never backed off of clearly telling friends and enemies, those who loved Him and those who hated Him, what his relationship to the Father really is. And that cost him greatly. That's right. So ultimately, yeah, that cost him. So now we too will suffer because of truth-telling as to who we are. We're in a very similar situation that he was in. And when the pressure is on, are we going to stand or fold? When the pressure is on, are we going to confess our relationship to the Father? Are we going to confess our relationship to Jesus when the pressure is on? God help us do exactly what He did in regard to His relationship to the Father. Because if we don't, deceit is in our mouths as to who we really are. That's right. If and when I've caved in that situation where it's an opportunity or people should know who I am and what my relationship to Christ is, And I haven't made it known. I've acted as if I'm not related to him. That's deceit, isn't it? May God help us be truth tellers about our relationship to Jesus. Just like Jesus was a truth teller about his relationship to the Father. Many of our brothers and sisters have lost their lives doing that. They have followed in Jesus' steps, haven't they? And for many of them, it's cost them their lives. Peter continues, Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return? In the face of being reviled and slandered, Jesus often maintained, what, a meek silence. At other times he replied, you know, at other times he replied to their reproaches with calm reasonings, with affectionate appeals and prayers. To be spoken evil of falsely is to be misrepresented and falsely accused. This is one of the most difficult temptations known to man. To be falsely represented. Oh, man. I can... You know, there's... You guys can sin against me in a lot of different ways and praise God. (laughs) But to be falsely represented, (laughs) that is hard. I don't know if it is for you, but I trust it is. To be misrepresented and falsely represented That is one of the hardest sins for our human nature to bear. And it's one of the most difficult temptations known to man. We become angry. We cannot sleep at night. We misprioritize. We make being vindicated the biggest priority in our life all of a sudden for the next three weeks. (laughs) All I'm saying is Jesus was falsely represented. He was reviled and falsely represented time and time again. I'm just saying, it is a great temptation. And that's how Jesus was constantly treated. Reviled and falsely represented. It's a serious temptation. Jesus was labeled as a Sabbath-breaker, falsely represented. Jesus was blasphemed, being charged that he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. He was reproached as a companion of thieves and prostitutes with the implication being that he practiced their vices, or at least approved them, all false representation and reviling. He was accused of blasphemy for saying to the crippled man, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Falsely represented and accused. On multiple occasions they took up stones to stone him. When he spoke of the dangers of trusting in riches, the text says they mocked him. They derided him when he spoke to them about the dangers of obtaining riches. What they needed. He told them what they needed to hear. Those men were lost and on their way to hell. And they were trusting in riches. And they derided him for challenging their false trust and their false hope. They mocked him after he spoke those things. Then, of course, during his trial and crucifixion, they severely falsely accused him and mocked him, scorned and derided him while he was being put to death. But instead, he prayed for them. The writer of Hebrews, writer of Hebrews exhorts us to consider his life in these words. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in yourselves. Oh, what great advice that is for suffering unjustly. That's just great advice. You can become weary. You can become discouraged. Living in a marriage relationship where one spouse unjustly treats the other, you can become discouraged and weary. Living In a master-slave relationship where that's going on. And those people that the writer to the Hebrews wrote to, they were in the middle of it, weren't they? They They're in the middle of this very thing. And he just says, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Now, these are only a few of the recorded incidents I went through here. Jesus being subjected to this type of reviling. And how did he respond? The text tells us. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That's how he responded. Someone said, quote, Men tried him. Devils tried him. God tried him. And the result was always the same; he committed no sin, nor was deceit or reviling <laughs> or threatening <laughs> found in his mouth amen he's glorious from the accounts of jesus' crucifixion, we know we know he was able to speak. This just dawned on me based on Wednesday's study and this. We know because up to the very moment of Jesus' death, he was still able to speak with a loud voice. And the text says that. Prior to the very moment of his passing, he cried out with a loud voice. So during all that reviling and mocking, he could have had a voice. To speak against it. But he did not. He did not. And we know he was able to speak. To the other man on the cross. But he did not. When they reviled him. In all those things. Wow. That's right. So. So. Instead of reviling and returning evil for evil, what did he do? Here's a key. Peter opens up a window for us to what few understood or saw. A window through which we can see what was going on in our Lord's heart and mind during all his unjust suffering. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to him who judges rightly. There it is. How did he do it? That's how he did it. He lived by faith as a man. Systematic theology is important here too. He's truly a man. And being joined to deity does not lessen. That he had to live a life by faith as a man. And here it is. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? But entrusted himself to the Father, to him who judges righteously. When Jesus was on the cross, they actually mocked him regarding this. They said, he trusted in God Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And then they said, let him come down from the cross, if he's the Son of God. No, no. He remained on the cross, because he was the Son of God, doing the will of his Father. So instead of returning evil for evil, He entrusted himself to God. I was going to read a section of Psalm 23, but I won't do that. If you want to see an exposition of he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously, read Psalm 22. And you will have the curtain opened as to how he did this. How he entrusted himself to God. He entrusted Himself to Him who judges rightly. If, when, where, and how we will be vindicated and our unjust suffering righted is not up to us. It's not up to us. And Jesus, of course, has taught us that and shown us that. Wow. Three concluding applications relatively quickly. You and I must know our calling and why we are called and who called us. That is a wonderful concept. God has called me to this. Don't ever forget it. In the midst of the fire, I'm here suffering For not lying. Because I'm a Christian. It might cost you your job. I was asked to lie. Didn't cost me my job. (laughs) Might cost you yours. Whatever. Suffering. Because he is Lord. And you say. You say you know. I can't do that because the Lord that bought me at an awful price tells me not to do that. That's short. I can't do that because the Lord. You've got to put this next part in there. You've got to get the gospel in there, you see. I can't do that because the Lord who bought me at the awesome price of His blood. commands me not to do that. And then you don't lie. Okay? That's just a concrete example. You might suffer. You might suffer for doing good. Or I can't do other things. You're following Christ, you see. He's called you to it. In that moment, in that moment, that's when you need to know and remember I'm called to this. I'm called to this. Thank you, Lord, for employing me. Isn't it more blessed to suffer for righteousness' sake? Shouldn't you be leaping and dancing? Thank you, Lord. That's what the apostles did in Acts 4. After they were beaten, they went out, what? Rejoicing that they had been counted worthy. Remember, what is commendable behavior? They had been counted worthy. Commendable behavior. They displayed that commendable behavior that our text is talking about in Acts chapter 4. And they went away rejoicing. That's the only way to get through and not stumble in these situations. Follow Jesus. You've been called to it. Second, you must use the legacy Jesus has left for you. We must use that legacy, His example. We must use it that He's left for us. And last, you must follow in His steps entrusting yourself to Him who judges righteously. That's following in some of His steps, isn't it? Follow in that step of entrusting yourself to Him who judges Righteously. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, you and your Son are altogether glorious. What else can we say? Lord, and it had to be your idea to take people like us and mold us and make us into the image of Jesus. Thank you that we are Jesus's workmanship. We are the raw material that this wonderful, wonderful artist, we might say, Lord. He puts his hands, Father, Upon us, and O oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your hands, on us, as your workmanship. Oh, we plead that you would pour out the Holy Spirit as you have been given for the building of your church, even us. Thank you for him. May you please send a much greater a fusion of his presence. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.